Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Immigrant Nation, welcome back. It's a new week, so we have a new episode. Again, I want to thank you all for continually supporting me and the podcast, from liking and following my posts on all my social media, giving the podcast a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and obviously downloading and listening to the podcast. I appreciate you and all the things that you do to support me. By the way, if you'd like to get in touch with me, if you want to come on the podcast or if you know someone that wants to be a guest on the podcast, you can hit me up on all the social media. My handle is at Immigrants Life. You can also email me at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. That's the business. Now, let's talk about the episode. I am incredibly, incredibly honored to have this very important woman as a guest on the podcast. And when I say incredible, I really mean it. Her story and what she stands for is something we should try to emulate in our lives. I love this conversation, and I'm pretty sure you will too. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest will fight for your equality since she is the press secretary for the Canadian Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Youth. And she will also fight for you physically since she has a black belt in karate. Everyone, please welcome Joise Namwira. Thank you so, so much. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you like it. By the way, thank you for coming on the podcast, Joise. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I always blow my mind every time I reach out to people, especially special people like you you know, with busy lives and whatnot, and they agreed to come on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Before we continue, why don't you tell the Immigrant Nation where they can reach you? Yeah, follow me on, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, all over the place. My name is Johise Namwira, J-O-H-I-S-E-N-A-M-W-I-R-A. So follow me and let's connect. Beautiful, beautiful. Why did you decide to address yourself as Joyce? I decided to address myself as Joyce because that's typically what I go by. Um, It's a complicated story, but... I like complicated stories. (laughs) I think when I first went to school here in Canada, they asked me what my name was, and I, I was a little bit shy to say it the way that, you know, my parents say it, and I just went by Joyce, and I've gone by Joyce for most of my life. So most people call me Joyce. Mm, I'll just still call you Joyce. I, I like that name. I love that name. It's beautiful. Thank you. But yeah, but I understand what you went through. It's the typical immigrant story, especially if you have like ethnic name, you know. And I no. funny one time I met this guy, he's a white dude in Canada, and he's like, What's your name? I said, Aaron. No, no, no. What's your name? I'm like, Aaron, what do you want to say? And he's like, no, no, like your Filipino name. Oh, and then I realized, oh, he's trying to figure out what's my real name. But it's my real name is Aaron, you know? Because as you know, like you, a lot of immigrants, they change their name to like westernized, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad because there's so much power in a name. Like my name, Jogise, it's a word in Mashi that means go and take it to its destination. So the Let's fact go. that... Right. The fact that I went through a phase where I was shy and embarrassed of pronouncing it the right way, when it speaks like a prophecy on my life, why would I, you know, hide that? So how do you feel now that you still carry on with the name Joyce? I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I think um, I know where I come from. I'm confident in my background and my heritage. It's just out of simplicity that I'm used to being called Joyce, but yeah. I, I'm okay with either Johise, Joyce, like I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, I understand that like you name, you say your name, Johise, and they'll be like, oh, it's Josie. 
Yeah, Josie, Josen, Johis. I like Johis actually. That sounds cool. Yeah, so, I've heard all kind of things. Let's get some background going on here. Uh, you left the DRC because the Rwanda massacre, is that correct? Not necessarily. So I left um, at the age of two years old, and this was after the first Congo. Well, Africa's first world war is what it's called. Okay. And this is it's a complicated history, but, you know, the genocide in Rwanda happened and then the ripple effects impacted the neighboring countries. So this was mm. a separate war, okay. um, but it did have a big impact on the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where my family was from. So mm. we actually had to flee because of that context. What do you mean by it's spilling over to another country? What like... Because of the rebels are coming over the border? or Yeah, so many people fled because of the situation of war going into the neighboring countries, and uh, that created conflict. Okay, I actually was talking to my son about the Rwandan massacre over mm-hmm. the weekend because we went to the Canadian War Museum, mm-hmm. and I there's a part that they did, um, uh, the African part, and I tried to explain to him, like, and he says, like, that's horrible, Dad. I said, I know, dude, it's bad. It is bad. And it's, you know, I hate that we always tend to think, you know, this is just an African issue. Wars have happened across the world. Um, and this one was very sad in the sense that we we had everything established to intervene, but the international community chose not to. Because you guys are not cool enough. Uh, you know, that's the easy way of saying it. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like. Like when the Ukraine thing happened, everybody's like, oh, my God, help Ukraine. But then, oh, by the way, there's there's um, there's the Palestine happening. There's this happening. There's a lot of conflict in Africa, like we're talking about. It's like, how come we're not paying attention to those two? How come? Yeah, it's a good question to ask. I mean, obviously, I saw a lot of articles saying like, oh, because you know, it's more of like ethnic thing. Like, oh, Ukraine's are white-looking people? Maybe. I don't know, to be honest. You know, and it just because you point out that there's other wars, it doesn't mean that the situation in Ukraine was less important. You can have Agree. attention to both causes and recognize that, you know, in Congo, there's the deadliest conflict since World War II is happening with the most casualties. Um, the situation in Myanmar, the situation in Afghanistan, Palestine, these are all worthy causes of attention. Agree. I completely agree. It doesn't diminish the other's atrocity because this place is going through something too. Mm-hmm. I oh, by the way, can you educate my, you know, uneducated brain? What's the difference between Republic of Congo and then Democratic Republic of Congo? So there are two different countries. The Democratic Republic of Congo is in Central Africa, formerly known as. Zaire, hmm. and then the Republic of Congo is a bit um, west, and that's a different country. So that's Congo, the capital of that one is Brazzaville, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the capital is Kinshasa. Okay. Was there a, one country before and then it just split, or it's always been split? I mean, prior to colonization, these borders never existed. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was an empire that mixed with, I think, Congo, Angola, and Congo Brazza, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. And then with the arrival of the French, the British, the Belgians, I don't know how much you know about the story of the partition of Africa. I basically sat down one day and they decided to split Africa like a piece of pie. So France (laughs) said, I'm going to take this piece. England said, I'm going to take this piece. And then King Leopold II of Belgium took Congo as his personal and private property. And then we were under his colonial rule. For that whole period of time. Yeah, this part I kind of know a little bit because of the book. Um, what do you call that? Oh my God. I I love reading, but I always forget the name of the books. Was it King Leopold's Ghost? No, it was The Heart of Darkness. Yes, Heart of Darkness. Yeah. I love and hate that book. It's so dark. I can't like... It's every- an interesting book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, obviously for some that doesn't know... The movie Apocalypse Now was based on that book. I never seen the movie. I've actually I haven't read that book either, but we studied it. I did my master's in African studies and we kind of studied, you know, how Africa has been portrayed by Westerners, by Europeans. And that was one of the case studies that we read. Hmm. Uh, we talked about. That's beautiful. 
So let's go back to you. You left Congo. You guys moved to where? So my family left Congo. We went to Kenya. And there my, my dad had met a German Mennonite couple who just, you know, they had offered to give him a ride to church in the morning. And I think just they randomly? Kind of, just randomly, they were picking up people at, at a guest house where my dad was staying. And he was one of the people who said, yes, I'll take a ride to church. And on that drive, they really, really connected. He told them about his story. He said, you know, I have a wife and a daughter who are still stuck in the Congo. Um, and so they, we came to Kenya, met him there. And that German couple actually helped my family gain refugee status. And we moved to, to Canada with them. Oh, so your dad left you guys in Congo? Yeah, so he left before us. To find job, I guess? To find safety. Okay, to so find safety. Oh, because they're hunting men, or how does it work? Well, they were persecuting people, yeah, at that time. Yeah, that's my God. So how long did it, before you guys met up with Dad? I think it was a number like of months, like maybe half a year, and then we we met up with my dad in Kenya, and then from there, you know, we managed to meet this German man and a couple. We stayed with them in Kenya and they helped us move to Canada. Okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm fixated with Kenya. I, I love the, like, the journey. How did, how did your dad decide that he's going to Kenya instead of anywhere else in Africa? I think he was in a situation where his life was in danger and he just decided to go out of instinct to the first place that he... Um, found a way and Kenya was that place. Did he know anyone there? I think he may have known a few people okay. uh, at that time. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, this is part of his story. So he might know it best. Like I said, I was a baby mm -hmm. at this time, just under two years old. So I, I don't have many memories of this period of my life, but I do know it was a very difficult time for my parents. Of course, of course. So you were two years old when you moved to Canada? Mm-hmm. Wow. So you don't really remember Africa? I don't remember much, no. I think I what I do remember are stories that I've heard from my uncles, from my cousins, from my grandparents. From a young age, I've always just had such a passion for stories. Hmm. And so I'd always be like, well, you know, kids, kids love stories and love hearing things. But I'd always be like, tell me stories about back home. And my cousin um, would tell the best stories. So I grew up with such a rich, like, cultural foundation even though i was in canada like we spoke swahili at home mm. we ate congolese food um my parents you know they they raised us as congolese children so i had a really strong congolese foundation at home even though we lived in canada that's beautiful they speak french there right in congo we do we we, we have five languages so five language yeah we have french we have swahili lingala um, Chiluba and Kikongo. I love the names. It's so colorful. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not shitting on English. I love English, but it's just like when you say English, you're like English, and like yeah, cool. Then you say like Swahili, and then this. I'm like, yo, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> and do you speak five languages? Those five I speak, languages. I speak four. So I speak um, Swahili is my first language, and then French, and then English. And I took Spanish classes throughout high school and university. But I can't say that I'm fluent. I'm like intermediate. Yeah, you can find the library. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Why did you decide to take uh, Spanish? Um, because at that, at that time, like my dad, he worked a job where he traveled a lot and he would bring us back CDs or gifts from places. And I really loved like Latin music. Mm. So I had an appreciation for Spanish culture and I just wanted to learn the language. So in high school, I took a Spanish class and then I got to go to Spain with my class and I had like such a beautiful trip seeing um, Barcelona, Sevilla, Madrid, um, all the like southern places, Torremolinos. Like I had so, so much fun. And, and that's just how I got into Spanish. Mm, that's beautiful. Was that a college trip or a high school trip that you did? It was a high school trip. Okay. How long does it last those kind of trips? I think that trip was two weeks long. Like I spent my my sixteenth birthday there. Hmm, that's cool, man. So live in Canada, growing up, you know, Congolese house, and then outside is Canadian. How did uh, Johise grew up like with all those 
you know, intricacy of life? It's interesting because I think as a kid, I was very observant and I realized really quickly, like how to fit in in different circles. So, mm. you know, when we were with the Congolese community, I knew how to act Congolese and, <laughs> and dress Congolese. And, and although sometimes, you know, I had an accent, so I didn't fully fit in. But when we were with um, my Canadian friends, like I would talk English without an accent. I'd straighten my hair. And it's too bad that at that age, I had to feel like I needed to change myself to fit in different environments. But honestly, that's what I needed to do to survive. And that's what I felt Hell you yeah. know, worked for me. For sure. Like your dad had to go to Kenya, even though he doesn't know nothing about Kenya. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, so I, can't, I can't compare the two stories. He no, definitely had it worse than I did. But I hear you when you say that. Yeah, okay. it's survival. I, I love, by the way, because you're not the first one that, you know, women of color, black women, most importantly, are like, obviously, they have their curly hair, that they straighten their hair. I've never heard this before, that really? they straighten their hair to show that, like, oh, by the way, I'm with you guys now. Yeah, no, hair is is such a big, big topic for black women. Hair is part of our identity and it's also part of our expression. And for many of us, we've had such a difficult relationship with our hair, especially me. Like I'm wearing a weave right now. Um, and, you know, the relationship that I have with my natural hair is still something that I'm learning to love. Let's expand that. What do you mean by that? So what I mean is, you know, like I said, from a young age, I would straighten my hair, relax my hair, which is like basically chemically straightening the curls out of your hair. So I, I grew up, you know, having relaxed straight hair because to me, that's what looking beautiful meant. I would see images of women with the long, um, you know, silky hair on TV. And that was what beauty looked like to me. Um, but I never really had an appreciation for my natural hair. And I, at the age where I could, you know, put wigs and weaves and extensions, I went that route. And now my friends are even like constantly reminding me, like, you got to let your hair out. You got to love your hair. If you don't love it, nobody else will. And, you know, I'm learning. That's I'm learning awesome. to do that. That's beautiful. I love black girls' hair, especially when it's like poofy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, what's up, man? That looks like lion shit, you know? Mm-hmm. But no, it's I, beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. And we're seeing a lot more of that now. That's good. Uh, I know, like, the natural hair. I know it's hard to control. Even, like, some girls that has, like, you know, like, uh, let's say Caucasian girl has, like, curly hair. I'm like, yo, let it go. Let it all out. And they'll be like, oh, no, because, you know, it's it's poofy and it's hard to control. I'm like, yo, what's up? Let's go. You know, let it go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mentioned before that you have a black belt in karate. Where did this start? Who taught you? Why karate? Yeah, and I feel like it's it's interesting because it, it goes back to my dad again. He did martial arts back home um, mm. in the Congo, and so when he moved here, we were living in Guelph at some at the early stages of our lives, and he took karate there. So I used to go and watch as a kid, and I was really fascinated. And then when I turned five, I signed up for karate classes when we moved to Winnipeg. And I used to love watching movies by Bruce Lee, Jet Li, like yeah. all, all the martial arts movies. I grew up watching them with my dad and my brothers. And me and my brothers would be fighting each other, jumping off walls, doing backflips on the couch. Um, and we just really loved martial arts. So we we ended up doing it as a family activity. My my dad did it. My brothers did it. My mom did it. My little sister, who's 10 now, she does it. Um, and we would go to karate like three times a week. Uh, we would do tournaments. We would compete. Like I was part of the provincial team for a period of my life. And I remember telling myself, like my sensei said, you know, out of a thousand people, only one person reaches the black belt. And when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be the youngest black belt in this city. And uh, I got my black belt when I was 11. 11 that's six years only and you're crushing already yeah wow in the family who are the black belt other than dad obviously your siblings are they black belts too yeah so my dad's going for his third degree black belt my brother is a black belt the one who just comes after me and then my other brother is black stripe other brother is black stripe and then my little sister she's orange Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And my mom stopped at green. What do you love about karate? Uh, what I love about it is the discipline and the the way that it's not just like a sport. It's kind of like a philosophy. Mm. It's a way of life. So when mm. you practice it, you understand things like my style specifically. We never start fights. It's a defense um, practice. And we're taught, you know, you never need to start a fight, but always learn how to finish the fight. And I think that's something in life that I've learned, like in any kind of battle, you always got to finish the battle. It doesn't matter if you're the winner or the loser. Make sure you stand on your two feet and finish that fight. I love that. My dad did a little bit of judo and karate, too. And he kind of like taught us a little bit, not high level like your dad, but, you know, a little bit. And he, he said the same thing, like, don't start the fight, but make sure you finish it. Finish it, yeah. I love that. I did karate for a bit. Um, it was Kyokushin. I okay. Did. Yeah. I didn't last long. I I had to pay my own self, and yeah. I was starving myself just to get to the class. And I cannot starve myself for a long time, you know? Yeah, no, it's not cheap. It's definitely not cheap. The style that I did was Meibukan Goju Ryu, the mm. same one from the Karate Kid movies. I was just going to say, because when you said that you don't start a fight, you finish it. I'm like, oh. Yeah. So Sensei Yagi, like, that's a true story. Um, my family actually got to go to Japan, and we trained with the Yagi family. And they're the ones who are the founders of karate in a small island called Okinawa, hmm. just um, in Japan. That's amazing. How was that experience? It was incredible, like, to have been able to grow up watching those movies and then travel there with my family and train with the Yagi family. And, you know, that's where my dad got his uh, second dance, second degree black belt. And that's where my brother got his black belt in Japan. So it's really like rare for me to say, you know, not only am, am I someone who did karate, I got my black belt, but I trained in Japan with the Yagi family. Like it's, it's a bucket list experience. That's amazing. Do you have to be invited to go or you just can pretty much show up? Uh, typically they do different seminars throughout the years. Um, you're allowed to go, but it comes with the cost, right? Like the Yagi family is well known and their time is very precious. So you have to book in advance for sure. Oh, okay. Okay. And do you still practice today? No, I've stopped. Hmm. How yeah. long now? I, it's been at least like six years since I haven't trained. Okay. At uh, same time as... The when you got the black belt from you started six years. Well, I trained for like 16 years hmm. and then, you know, it just wasn't for me anymore. I wasn't enjoying it as I used to mm -hmm. and I wanted to pursue other things. So mm -hmm. I stopped training. Maybe someday I'll go back, but who knows? Well, yeah. You know, you, got, you have to save the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing something else now. <laughs> exactly. You know, but I did some research about you, obviously, and I love this thing that you did, that you started a Karate for Christ. Yeah, my dad did. I love that. The Karate for Christ, that's so badass. Yeah, so, you know, it, it sounds like such an op opposing concept that, you're, mm. you know, you're doing karate and in the context of Christianity, mm. but it actually goes hand in hand because karate is like a peacekeeping um, sport, especially um, my type, the Mebukan Goju Ryu, hmm. it's a peacekeeping mechanism and, and it goes hand in hand. So the karate for Christ idea came when my dad was teaching at a dojo at a church, actually. Hmm. And so he told them, you know, there's an international association called Karate for Christ. Like, it would be really nice if we joined. And so when we do our karate at that church dojo, we train and then we do devotionals and then mm -hmm. we train and it's a really beautiful mixture of the sport and the faith. I love it. I love it. Uh, just the name, you know, Karate for Christ. Yeah, it sounds it sounds cool, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is cool. I love it. Okay. And I know that you did some acting too. I don't know if you still do. Do you still do acting or? Right now, I've had to take a break from acting because um, my work takes up most of my time. Mm -hmm. But I really, really enjoyed it when I did. And it's definitely something I'm going to go back to. Like, So it's not the end. <laughs> as long as you're alive, right? Yeah. That's awesome. And then I heard that after school, you wanted to move to Vancouver and try to do a full-time actress. But, the, but, you know, immigrant parents, yo, 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 yo. that's going to happen. 
Right. Yeah, it's it's sad, you know, like I was dead set. I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I skipped grade 12. I graduated early. I was ready. I'd applied to the school. They accepted me. And my parents said, nope, <laughs> you're not, you're not moving to Vancouver at this age. Um, funny enough, like almost six years later or more, my brother got accepted to the same school and he got to go. Excuse me, what happened to quality? I know. But, but you I know what? I fought that battle. I walked so he could run. I love that. I love that. Yeah, you know, at least he's doing doing that. And hopefully you're enjoying that he is actually doing the, the dream, the original dream, I, I'll say. Yeah, no, he's more on the production side. He loves music production, film production. My brothers do music. They have a studio in the basement of our place in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. um, so he's really, really loving it. I was just talking to him yesterday and he's like so passionate about it. So I'm glad that he's living his dream. I love that. Hey, good luck, sir. I hope you crush it. Yeah. So when they, when mom and dad said, nope, Johise, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be the next Halle Berry. <laughs> How did you handle that? I was very upset. I was like, my whole life is ruined. You know, when you're 17, every little thing feels like the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And to me, that felt like the end of the world. I was like, how am I supposed to get an Oscar? How am <laughs> I supposed to live out my, you know, movie dreams? And so I did plan B, which is go to university, which is still a pretty solid plan B. I got a couple scholarships when I graduated and I ended up going to the University of Manitoba and I did theater there for my first year. And I realized, you know, like I love acting, but I don't like doing it when you're graded by someone's mm. opinion. So I, was, I love doing it as a passion, but not necessarily as a class um, in university style. Like I could do it outside of school, but not in school. Um, so I, I did a gender studies degree, but I continued doing acting on the side. And thankfully, my teachers were super understanding. Like whenever I had a movie, they would let me miss uh, like a week of class or miss exams. And I would do the exam when I came back. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that my teachers worked with me. That's um, beautiful. But that. when you do the movies, when you have to leave for production, you do you have and you have to miss like a week at least? Yeah, sometimes a week. Sometimes it can be longer. Wow. That's crazy, man. I, I, that's one thing I learning about acting is like, it's more of waiting than acting. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of time to set up and to to get the scene ready. But when the actors are there, like, you know, you do long days, like 10 hour plus days. Sometimes you do overnight shoots. Mm. It's a very rigorous type of job. But mm. what keeps you going is just how beautiful of a storytelling job that it is. Yeah. You, get to, you get to be somebody else and convince other people of that story and make them feel emotions throughout a movie. Like when you watch an Avengers movie and you see people stand up and clap at the end, like that's the beauty of storytelling. Yeah. Like people crying. Yeah. Or something that's not even real. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. that A lot of people is like, oh, it's just easy. You just, you know, say things. I'm like, no, no, dude, that's a craft. They practice that. It's a craft that you practice and you're so invested in it. Like, especially when I'm playing a role, like I really want to make sure that I honor the character. So I, I look at different things that can inspire me, different movies or different characters that I've seen before, different actors. And then I try to create a story out of that to make that person relatable. Can you cry on cue? I used to be able to. I haven't practiced in quite a while. How do you do it? Do you, because I, I, I've heard that people think of like something that will trigger them. And some people, they say that they put your, you put your like, tongue on top of your roof of your gum and you just do one of these and suddenly you'll cry. Yeah. Um, for some people, like you said, it helps to think about something that triggers them. For me, my eyes are always really dry. So if I just don't blink for long enough, I'll cry. And it works really well. <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Which one's your favorite character that have you acted? My favorite character that I've acted. Because um, hmm. I know you've done a few. Yeah, I've done a few. 
I'd say my favorite character was an immigrant woman that I played in a movie called Into the Madhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this story was about how there were women who were put into an insane asylum, but none of them were necessarily like mentally ill. They were just put in there because they were different. And what I liked about that role is originally they had written the script for a German immigrant to play the part. But then um, I went in with like a headscarf and I, I went full on African immigrant and they loved it so much that they changed the character just so they could um, bring me in. So I got to play that part in the movie and it was really cool. That's amazing. So you just came in an instinct. I'm going to put this on. I'm going to put my, my game on and then they'll take me. Yeah, I just I tried something different and they liked it. That's beautiful. Did you have a, I don't know, um, uh, agency or you just like through people that you've met? Is you? Applying? No, you know what? Like I was, I'm self-represented. Um, mm. For the longest time, I've been my own manager. Like I remember when I was 11 years old, my parents, they, they're very transparent. So I had the password to their email, but I literally went on Google and I, I Googled um, acting agents in Canada. Then I found every single email and I said, hi. Um, and I wrote like I was my mom. I was like, hi, my, I have an 11 year old daughter who is very passionate about acting um, and she's looking for an agent. Please get back to us. You know how many people got back to me mm. in that whole list? I emailed maybe over 100 people. And I think maybe three people got back to me saying, no, we're not available. No, we're not taking clients. No, no, no. <laughs> and it was so embarrassing, but you know what? That didn't stop me. Um, I think from a young age, I've always been someone who's very ambitious. And even if that didn't work out, I still continued to like audition. I would put my name out there. I'd watch YouTube for hours to see like, okay, how did this person make it? What did Will Smith do? Um, what did uh, Regina King do? What did Viola Davis do? Like the people that I really look up to. And then I just audition, 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 audition. And the thing about no is every no is a door to your yes. Oh, yep. All you need is that one yes. Yeah, all you need is that one yes. Yeah. What kept you going, though, even though like they're putting you down, saying no, you're not good enough? I think my dream was bigger than the reality. Um, ever since I was a kid and I watched my first Oscar award, I just visualized myself there. And I love, love, love telling stories. So that's what kept me going. I knew that I was talented and I knew that I would sacrifice anything to get me there. So I just kept going. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that you graduated early. Yeah. How early are we talking about here? Like I skipped grade 12. Okay. One year. That's amazing, man. That must be like challenging. It was, yeah. I spent a lot of my lunches doing high school work. So technically, I did grade 11 and grade 12 in the same year. So I graduated at the age of 17, a year ahead of my classmates. Mm-hmm. And then I went straight to university. What made you decide to put that so much pressure on yourself? I don't know. Like It's, it's interesting to think back and, and wonder, like, why did I do that? Why wasn't I just a kid like everybody else? But I think, you know, I grew up in a very hardworking household. Like my parents worked incredibly hard for us to have the life that we had. So hard work is really all that I ever knew. And I mean, I'm sorry for my brothers. I've talked to them about this, but I set the bar so incredibly high. Like (laughs) imagine, (laughs) imagine your older sister, like not only skipping a grade, but like winning the scholarships and then going to Oxford on top of that. Like I set the bar so, so high, but I'm grateful that they're so confident in themselves that it never shaked them at all. Um, they were just like, that's her and I'm going to live my life. Beautiful. Yeah, for sure. So can we safely say that you're the favorite? Am I the favorite child? That's a good yeah. question. I don't know. <laughs> I would say, I would say my parents appreciate me a lot. They mm. love all of us. Beautiful answer. Very civil. You mentioned that you went to Oxford. Why did you did. decide to go to Oxford? Um, I looked up what were the best universities in the world, and I applied to seven of them. 
And then I got into all seven that I applied to. No way. And I chose Oxford. Wow. First round pick. So how was that experience going to Oxford? It was it was really interesting. So I moved to England for it. And, you know, Oxford is a world-class university and it has its name for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of felt like going to Hogwarts in a sense because you have the colleges and then you also have the uniform. They call it a subfusk that is very much like the Harry Potter movies. Like that's even where they filmed the Harry Potter movies. Mm. So in a way it felt like a dream come true. Um, but I'd also say academically, it was very, very hard. Like I've never done something that challenging in my life. And I think I really struggled to be honest. It was mm. so incredibly hard. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on sexual violence against women in conflict. So I went mm. back to Congo for the first time since I had moved and I, I interviewed survivors of sexual violence and it was really, really heavy to hear those kind of stories of rape, of mutilation, of kidnapping, some of the most brutal stories I've heard in my life mm. and just repeatedly have the knowledge that, you know, I was just there as a researcher and there was nothing I could do to make the lives of these survivors any better. Mm-hmm. So that really hit me. Um, and it impacted me a lot even after I left and when I was supposed to write the degree, even to this day, like I still remember every woman that I talked to. Yeah, you can't just forget. No, not something mm. like that. You're like, that's one thing I was teaching some my kids especially. Is like, once you see something, you cannot unsee things. Mm-hmm. Once you learn something like that, that's atrocious, you can never forget it. Mm-hmm. And imagine that's just me listening. And mm. now it's knowing that these women lived through that experience. As young as 17 years old, 18 years old, mm-hmm. some people could have been my grandmother's age, my aunt's age, mm-hmm. my age. That was incredibly um, hard to, to witness. Did you decide to go to Congo to study uh, trauma against women because you were thinking, oh, I'm planning to go back and pay back or it was just so happens? Part of it was like the the status that I had being at Oxford, a mm. renowned university and the power that an Oxford thesis can have. Like once you write a thesis, it stays in the library and it's accessible to people forever. Um, and so I thought, you know, how many chances will there ever be a Congolese woman who can write a thesis about Congolese stories from a Congolese perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really couldn't have done anything else but that. Did they cover the trip, Oxford? They gave us a travel stipend, but they didn't cover the full trip. Okay. And I love that you said that, you know, a Congolese woman going back to Congo, because you speak the language, so do, yeah. that thing gets lost in translation. Yeah, so my interviews were actually all done in Swahili, and then I had to translate them back to English. But just the fact that I spoke the language made it more comfortable for women to share with me what happened. Yeah. Because that was their first language they were speaking in their language of comfort. Of course. And obviously, they look like you, you know what I mean? Like, there's Mm -hmm. a familiarity. Mm -hmm. Speaking of this, I was listening to a podcast before the uh, rough translation podcast and there was a episode says uh, entitled the congo we listen to it's about these women mm-hmm. uh, well it's about this woman uh, caucasian woman went to congo i think it was luvingi luvungi is that okay. right and she found out that there are some women uh, were saying that they were raped but actually they were not raped The reason why they were saying that was they were getting money from the West, from, you know, people feeling bad about the women and whatnot. And they keep on saying that. And I I find like when you mentioned that you went to Congo, I remember this podcast. I'm like, yo, this like I would like to talk to her about that. What did you encounter something like that or have you heard of that? I haven't heard of that personally. And unfortunately, stories like that tend to discredit the reality of what happens on the ground. Like the situation of rape in the Democratic Republic of Congo is very real. And women 
truly suffer. And Dr. Dennis Mukwege and the City of Joy and many other people on the ground, even the survivors themselves are doing incredible work to support, sustain and uplift each other. And it's unfortunate when we hear stories of people lying because they received money, but that isn't the general reality of what's happening in the region. Yeah, for sure. What, who's raping these women? Mostly it's um, soldiers, uh, militia, sometimes it's people in the community. Oh, okay. So I thought it was, you know, I thought it was just like, you know, rebels show, showing up in a town and just like, hey, by the way, this is what's going to happen now. At times, in some regions, it is rebels who show up. And yeah, soldiers, militia, rebels, um, very, you know, it depends on the region. Mm. Which part of Congo did you go to? I did my research in Goma, which is a city in the eastern part. Okay. Do you still practice what you learned from Oxford being like, you know, trauma and whatnot? Because I know it's not... Well, I mean, I now work for the Minister of Women and Gender Equality, which is such an interesting full circle moment that, you know, my undergrad was in women's studies. I did women's studies for my master's and now I work for the minister herself. Mm. And during the time of COVID, we really saw an increase of gender-based violence. So as I'm doing my work, like everything that I learned in my master's and my undergrad, I'm a press secretary. So my work is now more in communications and storytelling. All of that still is relevant. Okay. Press secretary. Let's, I hear this all the time, but I don't know exactly what it means. I, for me, it's like the person that speaks for the, whoever the person is. It, and you said storytelling. How, day to day, what, is, what do you do? So my work is a lot of media relations. I'm the person who represents the minister when it comes to interactions with the press. So reporters and journalists, anyone who wants an interview with the minister typically has to go through me. I'm the one who provides quotes. I'm the one who schedules interviews. I'm the one to provide statements. I also help with speech writing um, and you know creative ideas for the minister to engage with different topics hmm. uh, so that's what my job is nice very important job uh, do you mind me asking how do you get the gig how did i get the gig yeah i did an internship back in 2018 and i was working here in politics and at that time i was like i don't know if i want to come back to politics like i had already planned to leave for my master's so i wasn't looking for a long-term job uh, and I had a mentor at that time and I asked him, you know, like, what do I do? I'm not really like a political person. I'm not someone who's really with the party. And he said, you know, if you can't find a party, find a person that you believe in. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've always tried to find someone who, you know, lives, acts and works with integrity. Mm -hmm. And before working for my current minister, I worked for another minister, Miriam Monsef, and she was incredible and now i get to work with my current minister marcy ian and she's also someone who's incredible like as as a black woman press secretary who also works for a black woman minister it's it's such a rare part in our canadian history and i'm lucky to be able to be in this position mm -hmm. so the office of the minister that for women and gender equality what's the main goal of this office the main goal for us is to promote women and gender equality. Um, but we also have the youth portfolio. So we're doing a lot of work to support youth across Canada. What do you mean by that? Like, do you have programs that like, I don't know, make gyms, I guess? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of different programs that we do. Um, progress is slow. How do you keep their patience? I'm like, hey, let's go. Let's get it. Let's get it done. I think just knowing where the end goal is, it helps to remember why the journey is worth it. Mm. And would you like to run for office someday? People always ask me that question. And I, I don't want to say no, but I think I have different priorities right now. Like, I think at some point I'm probably going to go back into acting. <laughs> acting, eh? Yeah. You have to. You crush it, girl. Yeah. You You're know. so good. It was a big part of my life. So. It was it was so funny because when I was doing some research about you, so I you know I googled a little bit. I'm like, is this the same person? How could you be like you're so awesome? 
it feels like I've lived many different lives. Like I'm only 25 years old and I've done so much. And sometimes people are like, what's next for you? I'm like, you know what, what's next? I'm just at the point where I'm trying to have fun and slow down and enjoy the moment. I've been so on the go for most of my life, a heavy planner and a disciplined worker that now I'm just in a season of enjoyment. So now you're not really planning as much, not like when you're younger, I want to do this, I want to do that. Well, I think everything has a season. Like when I was younger, I didn't see many people who look like me in a lot of the spaces that I was in. So I had to be determined. I had to be inspired. Like for many times I was the only black kid in my class and I had to set an example that, you know, I was just as smart as everybody else. And because of the character that I am, like I couldn't, I didn't settle with just being smart. Like I wanted to be the best in many of the different things. And, you know, I've done a lot of that. And now I'm just at a point where I want to enjoy the fruits of what I've done. I love that. I love that. Where this drive comes from? Is this from dad, from mom, or just you came to the world like this? I think it comes from both. Like I come from such a resilient history. Like we talked about the Congo and the history that the people have been through, but we're still such a resilient people. And coming from a country like that and making the journey from Congo to Kenya to Canada, like I have no choice but to be determined. I can't settle for anything less. My parents showed me it when I was a kid. My community showed me it as I grew up. And now as an adult, I get to do the same thing for the next generation. Yeah, you can that little girl that looking up to you or little boy that looking up to you and say, yo, she looks like me. I want to be like her too. Yeah. And they can, they absolutely can. Definitely. Just, you know, just go to Oxford though, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so well, I mean, it's not just Oxford. Like I know, <laughs> I know it's like the immigrant parents dream for the kid to go to Oxford or Harvard or any mm. kind of academic thing. But we also have to understand that, Sports are an accomplishment. Arts are an accomplishment. The creative area, music production, um, theater, like all of those are accomplishments too. As long as you put your mind to it and, you know, work hard, you can make it. Mm, for sure. Have you ever been a victim of like, I don't know, like a slight prejudice going to work for the minister? Uh I wouldn't say like while I'm working for the minister, a lot of my job has been from home because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So I haven't experienced that firsthand yet, but definitely like in my undergrad, in my elementary school years, I experienced a lot of microaggressions and racism that really shaped my passion for human rights now. You said microaggression. And I know you talk about that on your thesis. Um, one of the video on YouTube that I watch about you. What do you mean by microaggression? So the interesting thing about microaggression, they're called microaggression, but nothing about them are actually micro. So mm. when we talk about microaggression, it's like a small scale aggression that doesn't have the intention to cause physical harm, but it actually does call cause harm to the person who um, you inflicted on. So for you, for example, if I were to say, oh, your English is really good. That's a microaggression because what I'm trying to say is, I know that you're not from here and I'm surprised that you can speak well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how about like, is this more of like a verbal aggression or it, it could also be like physical? It can be verbal. It can be physical. Like somebody touching my hair and yes, saying, hey, good. your hair is really interesting. Can I touch it? That's and that's actually like an aggression because it's physical. But that's an example of a microaggression that's racialized. This is, I don't understand when people are like, can I touch your hair? Like, why would you want to touch someone's hair? Leave them alone. It's weird, yeah. It feels like you're a, you're some kind of animal that can be pet, but I'm I'm not. I'm a grown person. Don't touch my hair. Exactly. Don't touch your, you know, there, there's a song that says, don't touch my hair. Yeah, Solange knows, yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's so weird. But how can we avoid my, microaggression? Because... Some people says things they don't really mean, right? Like they actually mean well, they just don't know how to say things. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people mean well, but it, it comes from a place of ignorance. Mm. And I think the best way for you to, you know, step away from that is to really broaden your circle, like spend time with people outside of your culture, people who look different than you, who talk different than you. 
like you'll quickly learn what's acceptable and what's not. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my family members, because one of my best friends, she's from uh, St. Vincent's. Mm-hmm. And and I remember she visited me one time and one of my, I think it was my one of my aunts, I don't remember. She's like, oh, I love her. She's so beautiful, but she's black. Um, I'm like, what did you just say? Oh. I was like, what? I was so offended, you know? Yeah. I'm like, what difference does it make if she's black or white or pink? Is she a nice person? Yes or no? Yes. So let's move on. But again, this is like people from back home. Yeah. That you have to teach. It's old colonial mentality, I guess. I get that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, but if, after that, she, they kind of learned. You, did you have to do that to, for your, uh, to your parents? I'm not saying that they do, but was there like times that you had to like, hey, dad, you can't say that. For my parents, like, I think because I was so young when they moved here, like maybe a lot of the unlearning that they did happened when I was too young to remember. Mm -hmm. But I know a lot of things like gender roles, like my dad learned to wash dishes when he moved to Canada. That's not something he used to do back home. Mm -hmm. And it was the German couple that introduced him to that. So different things like that, like parenting and, you know, what men do in the home and, and what women do, those kind of things they had to learn moving here. Mm-hmm. Listen, it's been a fun conversation. Before we close out, I want to ask you, what is the thing you're proudest of so far and why? The thing that I'm proudest of so far is the circle of friends that I have. I think everywhere that I've gone to go from Japan to Spain to all over the U.S. and Africa, like I've made such solid group of friends and I'm so so proud of the network of people who surround me uplift me and continue to keep me grounded that's beautiful so when are we gonna see Joyce acting again soon I hope I hope soon you know what you'll see me sometime and and I hopefully will not back down on going back to acting I hope so I hope so listen Joyce I really do appreciate your time I know you're a busy woman I really love and and I'm grateful that you came on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. Thank you again, Johise, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Erin Yosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.